Welcome to the Travel Diary Learning Journey to the Human Mind podcast, episode 9. So today's episode is based on topic 9 from the intro to Psychology 2 unit, which was also the final topic of that unit, it's on personality. So as we always do, let's begin with a definition. What is personality? Well, personality can refer to an enduring pattern of our ABC, our affects, behavior and cognition, our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior, as well as things like um, our motivations, which characterizes a person and it makes us who we are. And I think enduring is a very important part of it because it has to be something that's seen reliably over time to be considered a personality. And it's comprised of traits. And each trait is a um, tendency to, to think and to feel and to act in a particular way. Now, personality, there's two aspects to personality. There's the overt aspect, which we can see which is manifest in behavior. And then there's the covert aspect of personality, which is sort of the internal world in which we live and in which we ex experience ourselves. So uh, above traits is the idea of temperament, which is much broader than traits uh, and which is genetically based. So for example, levels of activity, how emotional we are and how sociable we are. So personality psychologists look at two things. They look at how, what makes us similar and what makes us different. So in terms of similarity, they look at the structure of personality, the patterns of thought, feeling and behavior that characterize personality. And they also study individual differences as well. So in this unit, we looked at a few different theories of personality. So first of all, psychodynamic theories of personality. So psychodynamic as in the school of psychology that Freud began. And so we start with Freud. He originally had what he called the topographical model. And the topographical model divided up our mental processes into uh, three separate processes. So there is the conscious mental processes, and these are well, what we're aware of, what's in our domain of awareness. These are rational, goal-oriented thoughts that we have every day. Then there is the pre-conscious mental process. And these are things which are not conscious at the moment, we're not conscious of at the moment, but which could be and are not and they're not like repressed to anything. It's just that I guess we've got a certain limited bandwidth. So I assume that this means something like, you know, thinking about your car. You don't think about your car 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but anytime you want to, you can think about it. It's still accessible. It's not being repressed. And then third of all, you have the unconscious mental process. And, and these are things that you can't bring up to mind. These are things which are repressed and, and these are irrational. They tend to uh, be um, associative thinking rather than logical thinking. And these can sometimes, and this is a very important part of psych psychodynamic thought, 
these can actually affect us. They can leak out into our behavior, such as through Freudian slips, which is slips of the tongue, mistakes that you, that you make. Uh, and at the center of Freud's theory, it's, it's um, emphasis on ambivalence and conflict. And I think this is one of the great contributions that uh, psychodynamics made to highlight the importance and the existence of conflicting feelings and motives. We don't always have 100% motive going in the same direction. We have, we have conflicts. And often I think there is some empirical evidence to suggest that the more conflicts we have, the more ambivalence we have, the, the greater toll it takes upon us uh, in terms of our psychology. Next, he developed the drive model, which was inspired by Darwin's uh, theory of evolution. And he thought, well, like animals, we behave according to certain drives or instincts. And he talked about two different basic drives, sex and aggression. So libido uh, not only refers to sex, but uh, things like pleasure-seeking and sensuality and, and love and companionship. And then you've got thanatos, uh, which is the death instinct. And this is where sort of our destructive, including our self-destructive urges might arise from. And he considered that when people had uh, problems with either directing this uh, uh, drive or inadequately discharging some of these drives, then that could be a cause. And then finally, he came to the structural model, which was, I think, kind of a tweaking in a, way, in a sense of the topographical model, where he divided up, he, he began to see this, our internal ambivalence and conflict as not being between just what we are conscious of and what we're not conscious of, but between what sort of our morality and our desires. So he posited that there were three sets of mental forces. First, there was id, which is where all the, um, our sexual and our aggressive uh, desires and drives come from. And this is characterized by what he called primary process thinking, which is very much like the unconscious mental process that we talked about before, which is kind of wishful, illogical, associative manner of uh, thinking. And it also works according to the pleasure principle. So it's basically like a three-year-old child just wants satisfaction and he wants to get what he wants right now and he doesn't care about consequences. It's something that is present from the time that we are born and it is our sort of primitive side. It represents our basic fundamental needs and our wants. And counterbalancing it, we have superego. And now this is where our morality comes in. And often this is our parental voice. It's the things that our parents told us to do and to not to do. And it's often established through identification, which I understand, my understanding is it just means where a child identifies with one of its parents, usually the same sex parent, which, and it develops around the age of five. And it's partly unconscious as well. And um, caught in the middle, you have the ego. And the ego, it serves not just those two, but actually serves three masters, the id and the superego, but also the external world. And contrasting with id, the ego 
follows the reality principle, which realizes that you have to actually take into account consequences and you have to balance it out with um, our desires and our wants, and which follows a secondary process thinking, which is more rational and um, goal-oriented. So what happens when uh, there is intra-psychic conflict, when there is kind of a battle and there is a kind of a disconnect between all of these mental forces? Well, Freud argued that we employ defense mechanisms, which can be described as being unconscious mental processes, which help to protect us from the anxiety which ensues with uh, this kind of conflict. So he, he listed a number, and I think um, some of the other psychodynamic uh, theorists maybe have added to their list as well. One is repression, which is quite simple. You basically try to keep that disturbing thought or emotion away from your awareness. And there is denial. Uh, and this is kind of similar to repression, but it's just failing to acknowledge what is, well, obviously true. So it's kind of like um, seeing a strange mole on your skin and saying, oh, it's nothing. You're, you're kind of living in denial. Then there is projection. And this is where you attribute to other people maybe thoughts and feelings that you have about yourself. So, for example, if you are trying to uh, avoid seeing yourself as being a liar, then you're more likely to attribute lying to other people. Then there's a reaction formation where you actually, uh, I guess, try to counterbalance a certain uh, troubling thought by accentuating its very opposite. So if you're very jealous of your sibling's success, then you might actually react by overpraising your sibling's successes to show, well, look, I, I, can't, be, I can't be jealous. Look at, look at what I'm doing. There's sublimation. And of all the defense mechanisms, this is the one which is the most socially acceptable and it's a sign of maturity. And this is where you convert potentially antisocial, sexual, and, ag and aggressive impulses into something that is socially acceptable. So an example of this might be where you um, take some aggressive impulses and you, you take up boxing or some sort of competitive sport as a way, as an outlet for that drive. Next, we have rationalization, where you try to make your disturbing thoughts rational, where you try to logically explain them away. Next, you have displacement, which is where you might project your emotions away from the real target to, to a scapegoat. So for example, if you're having trouble to set work with your boss, you might come home and give your poor dog or your family members a hard time. Regression, and this is I think kind of related to his kind of psychosexual stages, which we didn't actually cover in this um, unit because uh, our lecturer said there was no scientific basis for it at all, where you, you regress to an earlier stage, like perhaps like an anal stage, an you know, oral stage, that kind of stuff. And passive aggression, which I think originally I did read up on this, and they said the idea of passive aggression actually began not in the field of psychology, but in the military. Maybe it was World War One, 
where there were certain subordinates who couldn't really exactly refuse to do follow commands, but they tried to do it in the least efficient way possible. And so they, they defined this idea of uh, passive aggression, which was then picked up by psychologists. Carl Jung is also one of the giants of uh, psychodynamic theories, and he was the founder of analytical or Jungian psychology. And um, we didn't really go into his uh, analytical psychology very much, so I'll just uh, give you some broad brush strokes. He maybe hopefully we'll discuss him in a in a later uh, psychology uh, unit because I think it's quite interesting and I, and I do I've recently been doing a little bit of reading of um, Jordan Peterson I have to say Jordan Peterson seems to be deeply enamored of Carl Jung and he draws a lot I think on sort of Jungian thoughts especially when it comes to kind of the power of of symbols and and our fairy tales our stories. Because this is a lot of what he talked about. I think he kind of shut himself away for a while. I think he, su- he suffered himself from some, so, some sort of mental disorder. So I'm not entirely sure of that. And he, he came out of this period of introspection. And he came up with this whole idea about the role of, of symbols and our culture and our magic and our stories that we tell ourselves. And he talked about the collective unconscious, which is different from the personal unconscious. The collective unconscious represents the, um, the unconscious in common with uh, each other and with our ancestors and our evolutionary past. It represents all the underlying themes and symbols, I guess, that um, lie beneath our cultures. And he talked about archetypes. And archetypes are sort of this universal, this um, sort of symbolic patterns and ideas and thoughts that resides in the collective unconscious. So apologies to those who know Jungian psychology well, and I'm getting this a little bit wrong or very wrong, I'm not sure. So, for example, archetypes include things like the shadow um, and um, anima, which is sort of the, the male's image of what a woman is, and animus, which is the woman's image of what um, a male is. And he also talked about um, complexes and, and persona, persona being that aspect of your personality that you may try to hide from others or to reveal to others as well. And for Carl Jung, he saw a very important trait of personality being the division between extroverted and introverted. And one of the most important developments in psychoanalysis since the death of Freud has been the development of object relations theories. So, and we also didn't go into this very much, but my understanding is object relations theories is based upon the idea that we are social animals and developing a certain relationship with other people is fundamental to, we, to who we are and it reflects our maturity. You know, one of the key ways that we develop from an, uh, an infant through adolescence and so on is our ability to relate to other people. And object relations is this kind of enduring patterns of how we interact with other people. And it's, I guess, based a lot on the kind of relationships we have with our parents. 
and object relations can be affected by our view of ourselves and our rep mental representations of others. And there are people who have very unhealthy object relations who grows up and, ha and have difficulty maintaining good relationships with other people. One challenge for psychodynamic theorists is that if many of our personality processes are actually unconscious, how do we actually assess them? And um, there are a, a number of methods. One is um, life history method, which is basically what Freud was doing, kind of case studies where you study an individual in great detail and over an, a very extended um, period of time that uh, brings to mind a movie I watched last night. It's uh, Woody Allen's uh, Sleeper. And in it, he plays a guy who has been basically in hibernation in sleep for, I think it's 200 years. And when he wakes up, one of the things he says is, you know, he's, he'd been seeing a Freudian psychologist. And if he had been seeing him for the whole 200 years, he would have almost finished his psychotherapy, uh, which brought a smile to my face. Anyway, so you also have projective tests. So this is where you give someone an ambiguous stimulus, and then they, you see the way that they interpret it. And the idea is, as we said before, because aspects of your unconscious leak into your conscious behavior, such as Freudian sleep, the way that you interpret ambiguous stimuli will also reflect some of your underlying unconscious processes. So, for example, the Rorschach inkblot test, and there's also one called a thematic a perception test, TAT, which is, I think, where they, you are shown a series of ambiguous drawings of people interacting, and you are asked to make up a story. And so these kinds of tests can be used, though I think it's a little bit controversial, and there are some criticisms of these. So moving on from the psychodynamic theories of personality, we have the behavioral model. And in the behavioral model, the idea is, well, you've got an environment, and the environment enters an individual's head, and from that individual, we see manifested behavior. And really, for a behavior, behaviorist, I guess, they are more interested in the overt rather than the covert aspects of personality, because for them, a personality is nothing more than a bundle of habits. Personalities consists of behaviors that we can actually witness. And at the end of the day, the middle bit, the black box, well, we can't actually look inside someone's head, so it's not scientific to study it. And it doesn't really matter anyway, because it's really the environment, the environmental cues, which affects behavior through things like uh, classical conditioning and operant conditioning. So they believed in, I guess, determinism, you know, free will is an illusion. And coincidentally, I think the psychodynamic school would also be deterministic because they believed in something, I think it's called psychodynamic determinism, where they said, actually, I think it's called psychic determinism, where they said, Everything that you do, even little trivial things, are a reflection of underlying processes and your history and your ambivalence and all that kind of you know, mental processes, id and superego and ego, and therefore you actually don't control anything. Everything 
has a meaning, nothing happens by chance. Third of all, we, were, we looked at the cognitive social theories of personality, and, and these were inspired by the behavioral school, so they did also agree that it was about learning and behavior is about learning rather than conflict or defense or instinct. But they didn't ignore the black box in the middle, and instead they talked about reciprocal determinism, which means that the person affects the behavior and the environment, the environment also affects the person and the behavior, um, and so on. The three all mutually influence each other. Cognitive social theorists think about the mind as being akin to a computer. It's, a, it's all about information processing. So personality is really nothing more than the way that we process and encode and we think about emotion. So if you look at the way that what, what drives our behavior, first of all, there is an outside stimulus. We encode it, which means we characterize what this event might be. Then we look at personal value. Is this stimulus relevant to my personal goals? Is it somehow relevant to me? Does it have personal meaning for me? And then we come up with a behavioral plan, which is the, the plan of action. And this is influenced by the behavior outcome ex expectancy. So will this behavior actually produce the outcome that I want? It's also influenced by the self-efficacy uh, expectancy, which is, well, am I even capable of executing this behavior? And from that, we come to the actual behavior with itself, which is the execution of the plan of action. And this is influenced by our actual competencies, whether or not we have the skills for executing the behavior. And then there is a loop with self-regulation where you have to monitor how it's going, and then you might have to go back and you might have to revise your, your behavioral plan. So next major theory, um, it's the, it's the um, trait theories of personalities. And so what is a trait? Well, a trait is basically any adjective to describe a person. If you look at the dictionary, and this is actually what was originally done uh, someone a couple of psychologists i think went through like every word and they tr and they identified words that could be used to describe a person i think they came up with 18000 words and then and these are all what we would think of as traits and then if you do i guess some surfact analysis where you see because on many of these words of these 18000 words are actually saying the same thing or aspects of the same thing so you can kind of narrow it down narrow it down and get to like the core traits and this is what really drives the trait theories of personality a psychologist named Isenck further proposed that these traits were themselves organized into or grouped into super traits and he identified three super traits introversion extroversion neuroticism emotional stability which i think is talking about one's tendency to suffer from negative emotions, guilt, self low self-esteem, uh, anxiety, depression, etc. And lastly, psychoticism, impulse control, which I think relates to things like aggression. 
And he further proposed that these three super traits, they were reflected in the brain differently, in particular with cortical arousal. And this was especially the case with the extroversion, introversion, because one idea is that introverts are more cortically aroused and therefore they need less stimulation in order to excite their brain. Uh, and because their brains are already quite highly aroused, they prefer situations of low sim uh, stimulation. Whereas someone who's extroverted, they are actually have low cortical arousal and they need as much stimulation, external stimulation as possible in order to feel that arousal uh, and, and hence they become extroverts. I think for me, this is a little bit akin to the study of gustation of, of taste because, for example, there are some people who like really, really spicy food, but it's not that they can handle spicy food better. It's that they have a worse sense of taste and therefore they need more kick. They need more stimulation in order to feel something while someone who has very sensitive taste um, might for them having a very spicy food would be just over the top and in fact my understanding is for people who are super tasters and one of my sisters is a super super taster they never can handle very spicy food i'm not sure whether it's true of my sister i should ask her about that but that's but that kind of, i think it's kind of a similar uh, type of idea probably the most empirically supported including cross-culturally trait theory of personality is the big five model the, the five factor model and you can you can remember this very easily through the through its acronym ocean o-c-e-a-n o for openness to experience which is like being curious being unconventional then c is for conscientiousness which is kind of being careful and responsible e is for extroversion a is for agreeableness and N is for neuroticism, which we discussed before. And um, yeah, this, I think this is the most widely used. Though there is another version, which I think is a more up-to-date version, or more recent version, I should say, which is the Hexaco model, which proposes six factors. So this, these are honesty, humility, which is the H, emotionality, which is E, which is, I think, really kind of neuroticism. You've got extroversion, which is obvious. They've kind of cheated and said that's X. Agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness to experience, which of course is the same as in the five-factor model. So a psychologist named Walter Michel, I think that's how you pronounce it, M-I-S-C-H-E-L, argued against personality in a sense, because he said, well, personality tests don't really correlate well with behavior. And really, if personality does not determine how you behave, then does personality even mean anything at all? And he, he led this one-man charge against personality psychologists, and, and it really caused a lot of soul-searching. And eventually, there was a bit of, um, I guess, tinkering and nuancing of the study of personality. So they talked about 
the person by situation interaction that people will express certain traits in certain situations there was the it developed people developed the idea of the principle of aggregation which was that you can't say that a trait can predict behavior in one particular situation but it can predict in aggregation so it can predict over a class of behaviors over a range of uh, situations there was some talk also about you know there being kind of a if then uh, algorithm i guess to behavior it's not so kind of straightforward the final theory of personality we looked at were humanistic theories and uh, humanistic theorists like uh, maslow that you would know from the, his i think hierarchy of needs and carl rogers who was the first therapist to refer to the people he looked at not as patients but as clients they had a very positive optimistic view of humanity they considered that everyone was at, at heart they were good and that they all had what they called an actualizing tendency they wanted to grow and to develop and to achieve the best that they can be their ideal selves and that often a lot of the issues that arise arise because of the disconnect between our true selves or our self-concepts and our ideal selves so what about the whole nature versus nurture debate when it comes to personality how much is uh, personality a reflection of our genes and how much of it is sort of immutable or enduring um, and how much of it is maybe culturally based and there's some very interesting studies looking into this especially in terms of temperament which as i mentioned before is more foundational more fundamental than traits and which are more heavily influenced by genes so from a very early age as early as four months of age infants who have who are inhibited have a certain way of crying a certain pattern of crying and of behavior when they're confronted by a stimulus which is unfamiliar and if you follow these uh, children uh, these babies really as they get older you find that those who are more inhibited they are more likely to develop social anxiety disorders or depression as adults so we can see how in in many ways how much this is sort of um, inborn similarly there was a new zealand study where children at the age of three who were classified as being difficult when they followed them later in their life they were more likely to have problems with alcohol or with antisocial behaviors boys rated it uh, as aggressive when they were ages of 10 and 13 they were more likely to become criminals at the age of 26 but personalities aren't necessarily immutable and they do change for example as we get older apparently we increase our scores of conscientiousness and agreeableness and reduce our neuroticism which I have to say for me is a little bit counterintuitive because it seems that from some of the examples I've seen that as we get older people tend to get more cranky. 
If we look at twin studies, which are sort of the gold standard for estimating heritability, i.e. sort of the genetic component of different variables, we see that all of these, all of the traits have certain degree of heritability, but some more than others. For example, agreeableness and conscientiousness have the least. Openness is kind of um, in the middle. And when you come to extroversion and neuroticism, they have quite more substantial sort of genetic um, impact. So for me, the take-home message from that is if you have a child, it's probably more effective and efficient use of your energy to try to increase their agreeableness and conscientiousness because that would be less genetically based. Something like extroversion, you, it might be harder to push them against the grain because depending on the genes you give them, they might be already quite inclined one way or another. So I think that's probably just about it. Um, yeah, that ends episode nine of this um, podcast. So next episode, episode 10, we will move on from the intro to psychology two unit to the critical thinking unit. And uh, that didn't have much sort of meat in the bone, but I can probably do that in I, probably, I think, two episodes. And after that, it'll be a break and then the next trimester, which I'm studying as we speak. So until next time, bye for now.